0: Well, now, good and gracious God, in these moments, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts together in this sanctuary be found pleasing in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, brothers and sisters, grace to you from the Lord Jesus Christ and peace. Jesus had this way about him of surprising people. I think maybe it was his favorite thing. The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus shaking people up, taking long held rituals and regulations and assumptions and perspectives about how things are down here and turning them upside down. You've heard it said, said Jesus, but I say to you, you think your life, he said, is about this or that. But I say to you, it's not that way at all. And so we who follow Christ in this world continually need to let ourselves be reminded why we're here, what we're about, and to submit ourselves again and again to the sacred realignment of our assumptions and priorities with his. And so today we meet up with Jesus at a turning point in his life. As you may recall, Jesus was about 30 when he was baptized. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit came on him at that moment and in a powerful and unmistakable way. And immediately after his baptism, still dripping with water from the Jordan River, the Spirit leads him into the desert where he's tested hard by Satan, tempted to be a very different Messiah than God intended for him to be. It's a very difficult time for Jesus in the wilderness. And at that point, there's no indication that he has ever preached a sermon or healed anyone or fed or delivered anyone from demonic powers. And after that desert experience, Luke tells us that Jesus was, quote, led by the power of the Holy Spirit into Galilee. And while in Galilee, he caused something of a sensation. Word was beginning to spread about this extraordinary man, apparently anointed by the very power and presence of the Spirit of God. People were taking notice. And eventually, his tour of Galilee brings Jesus to his very own hometown. His hometown of Nazareth. Everybody knows him there, only they don't know him as Jesus the Messiah. They know him as Joseph and Mary's boy. No matter how old you may be, no matter how competent or successful or wise you may have become, you walk into your hometown, you walk into your parents' house, and immediately you're eight years old. In their eyes and sometimes in your own. So Jesus is back in Nazareth. And it happens to be the Sabbath. And Jesus, says Luke, always went to worship on the Sabbath. And he's sitting there probably among his relatives and friends. Mary is there, Joseph is there, his four brothers are there, sisters, and some friends who've known him most of his life. It's a very small town. And the service likely consisted of some very particular elements. I'm a little nervous this morning because there's a rabbi in worship with us today, so I'm really hoping I get this right. But in that service that day, there would be prayers. There would be the singing of psalms. No doubt they recited together the Shema, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your might. There'd be the pronouncement of blessings and then readings from Moses and the prophets. And then there would be a sermon. There wasn't an official clergy over the synagogue. And so any male Jew who felt himself to be qualified could ask to give a commentary on the scripture passage. And on this day, they call for a sermon and Jesus lifts his hand. The attendant gets the scroll from the ark or the cabinet where it's carefully stored. And Jesus unrolls the scroll until he comes to Isaiah 61 and he begins to read. Chapter 61, you may recall, is the prophet Isaiah's description of his own job. After years of of exile in a foreign land, in Babylon, modern-day Iraq. The people of Israel, by the power and provision of God, are about to go home. We're going home. Good news. And the Prophet said, God's Spirit is on me. The Spirit of God has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. We're going home. The Spirit of God has called me to preach, release to captives opening of blind eyes, relief for those who've been oppressed and beaten down, and to announce the long-awaited year of jubilee, the year of God's favor. We're going home, said Isaiah, and it's my sacred task to preach that. Well, Jesus looks up from the scroll in his hands He looks at his family, his friends, who are looking back at him in his hometown synagogue. And he says, that's my sacred task. That's God's agenda. This is what I'm to do. The Spirit of God has called me to say and to do this. This is what I'm about. Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And he sits down did you catch the agenda? It's it's a pretty short list. Good news to the poor, sight to the blind, release to the captives, freedom for the suffering, and announcing God's favor on everybody. That's the agenda. And as you begin to read this, it, it, it starts to dawn on you, that is God's agenda. And it's certainly the agenda for anyone who follows Jesus. It's the agenda for any church. It's the agenda for this church. These are our marching orders, friends. But also that day in the synagogue, Jesus included talk about the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of the Lord is on me, he said. Why? What's that about? Why these words about God's Spirit? Well, as I pointed out here before... Baptists are generally pretty good, you know, at getting things done and making plans and executing plans. So, my question is why couldn't we just have the appropriate committee write out our agenda? For the year 2019. You know, couldn't they present it at a congregational meeting and say, We recommend this agenda for First Baptist DC for the year 2019? And the moderator leads the discussion, and eventually somebody says, I move we adopt this recommendation, and someone else hollers, I second the motion. And the moderator says, We don't need a second, it comes from a committee. You know, it's like, Baptists know Robert's Rules of Order. But seriously, why why couldn't we do that? We have a lot of really smart, capable people here who, who could help us, you know, get this show on the road. Why bring in this matter of Holy Spirit? Well, because without the Spirit of God, we cannot do it. We can't. It doesn't matter how creative or educated, or capable, or hardworking, or well-meaning, or determined we are without the Holy Spirit. We can't do it. Why do we need Holy Spirit in order to live from God's agenda? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but today I'm going to mention three. For one thing, We need the Spirit of God because it's just in our nature to lean into self-centeredness, aided and abetted by our analytical mind. Now, I want to say up front, your rational, analytical mind is not your enemy. It's not. It's a gift from God. Uh, And yet, the mind is relentlessly dualistic. Our minds just know by comparing, opposing, judging, differentiating. It's, it's astonishing, really, how many churches of Jesus Christ operate almost entirely by the rational mind and the rule of preference. I liked the music. I didn't like the music. I wish they had more organ. I wish they had more guitar. I love the way they do communion. I hate the way they do communion. That sermon blessed me. That sermon bored me, you know. Friends, we will never, without the presence of the Holy Spirit, we will never get past, I like it, I don't like it, thumbs up, thumbs down. Another reason we desperately need Holy Spirit's presence and power and help is that without the Spirit, we keep trying to take the enormous, world-changing, life-altering, mysterious, magnetic mission of God and shrinking it down to the size of our little systems and programs. In other words, we're trying to haul in the kingdom of God on our backs by our own efforts. If we can just get organized, we say, and get enough people on committees, and hire the right staff, and meet our budget, and have a great website, then we'll be a real church, and we'll be doing God's business in the world. I often think and I've spoken of it here before of that Monday afternoon years ago when I was driving home from staff meeting at church. We were in Texas then and I was feeling kind of listless and restless. And right there in the middle of Colcord Avenue in Waco, Texas, it dawned on me that I had just spent the last three hours with in our staff meeting with some of the brightest, most God anointed colleagues you could ever hope to know ...wrestling with whether or not we should raise the cost of the Wednesday night meal by 50 cents. It was a crisis moment for me. Without Holy Spirit, we keep putting God in that tiny box that we can manage. But then something comes along like cancer... ...or a marriage melting down... ...or a family torn apart by abuse or addiction... Or systems of oppression let loose in the world that seem impossible to overcome. And we begin to understand that we need a God bigger than we could ever manufacture or manage. There are plenty of reasons why we need God's spirit. But the third and last reason I'll mention today is this. It's God's agenda that gathers up the poor, the blind, the captive, and the suffering. And without the power of the Spirit, these are often the very people that you and I are most likely to avoid. Mostly, I think, because they remind us deep inside that we share their same condition, if not physically, then spiritually. Every life in this room is poor and blind and captive to something. It's just hard for folk like us to talk about that. Let's be honest. Without the, the power of the Holy Spirit, we can't accomplish God's agenda for the poor, the blind, the imprisoned, the oppressed, because we resisted ourselves. William Willimon, the Baptist theologian, former bishop who now teaches at Duke University, told a story about a young woman who was finishing up her last year of college at Duke, and she had come to Willemann to talk about her future. And she was headed for graduate school in engineering, an area in which she was gifted. And her salary, were she to finish the two-year program, would likely start at a figure double of what her parents now earned at the end of their careers. But the young woman also felt something else pulling at her. She wanted to go to school But she sensed that there was something else too. And so she talked to Willeman about it. And she told about her desire to go and serve the people of Haiti for the gospel of Christ. And and, and in in their need, she wanted to be with them. And she talked about her uncertainty about how she could do that with this career uh, laid out in front of her. And Willemann listened. And then he just simply encouraged the young woman to follow her heart. And she left. And about a week later, he picks up the phone in his office to find a voice of an irate father on the other end of the line. Is this the man who put that crazy idea into my daughter's head? And uh, Willemund inquired, which daughter, which crazy idea, you know, who are you? And the man just spilled out his story. He said, my my daughter came home from graduation and she told us that she'd signed up for a year of mission work in Haiti before starting graduate school. What kind of experience could she possibly get in Haiti? We conclude that you put this idea into her head. And Willemont paused for a moment, sort of gathered himself, and then he said, may I ask you a few questions? Did you bring your daughter to church as a child? Well, of course, stammered the father. Willemann continued, did you make sure she was at vacation Bible school? Did you encourage her to attend Sunday school? Well, of course, the father said, impatiently. And did you encourage her to join a church during her college years where she could drink deeply from the Holy Scriptures and find a group of Christian friends? Well, certainly. Well, then, said Willemann. it seems to me that It is not I, but you who should be blamed for your daughter's change of plans. What do you mean? The father hollered into the phone. We only wanted her to be a Presbyterian. (laughs) Well, I'm sorry, Willimon said softly. You messed up and made her a Christian. (laughs) Friends, without the power of the Holy Spirit... We can't accomplish God's agenda for the poor, the blind, the imprisoned, the oppressed, because we resist it ourselves. One last thing about our text today that I actually hadn't thought about until Fred Craddock brought it to my attention. In this text, we're given the very first word that Jesus spoke, other than reading scripture the very first word the adult Jesus says publicly, did you notice what it is? The very first word from the lips of a grown-up Jesus of Nazareth, other than reading that passage of Scripture, is today. Today. Did you notice that? Well, as it happens, friends you have an opportunity today to take up God's agenda and to step into it right here in the coming year. In your worship guide, you can read about it later. In the announcements, there's an invitation to dinner and dreaming as well as some planning with our mission team tomorrow night. You don't have to be an official member of that team to come and dream and have dinner. And when you arrive tomorrow night, they're going to have God's agenda in one hand and the church calendar and the church budget in the other. And they would love to see you tomorrow night. Will you join them? If you and I have heard this word today from Jesus and Isaiah as some lovely, vague wish for what God's reign someday will be like, then we haven't listened carefully enough to this text. Today, Jesus said, today. And so come Holy Spirit, breathe into our self-preoccupied analytical minds and our scared controlling hearts. Breathe into us your very own life and power and wisdom and peace. And we confess today our utter dependence upon you We confess that we are incapable of living into your agenda apart from your good and gracious help. So please fill us, empower us to answer our calling in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.